I want to introduce my dear friend and brother George to all of you. Uh, rather than give him a long introduction, I thought I'd let him speak more and um, introduce himself. He is one of our mission partners, so that's the part I'm going to introduce. That uh, we as a church, uh, financially, out of what God gives us as a church, we tithe out of that. And uh, George's organization is one of those places we tithe to. We also have in the house Morgan Livingston, who is from Keystone Family Alliance. They are another mission partner of us. Um, and both of them, both of these organizations work in a similar space, but on totally different ends of the spectrum. Okay, and God's uh, really blessed us with a community that works locally, but also internationally to see the kingdom of God advance through working in the lives of children. All right, so I'm going to invite George up. Please welcome him as he comes up so he can share with us. Good morning. Okay. Good morning. Um, let me just first say this. Um, it's such a joy to be back at Word of Grace. This has been after five years, you know, coming back after five years. And a lot of things have happened in five years. And it's um, such a joy as I was spending time with Frank and Rosie and John and Jackie and um, um, somebody was asking me the question yesterday. I was spending some time uh, with uh, Morgan, and, and so they were asking. I just said, I met these people 20 years ago uh, in one of the conference in India where they would come and so faithfully teach, and they would work, and, 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 and Bob and Danny, yes, you know, I should not forget, yeah. Uh, so they would so faithfully come, and they would teach, and uh, I... I could not sit in their sessions, but I was in that conference invited to take care of children. So I was doing the children work, you know, working with children. And, and then I would cross paths with them. And one thing that always gripped my heart every time I saw these people from Indiana is their love for Jesus. Just the way they loved Jesus. And um, um, as a 27-year-old, as a 28-year-old, for me to just cross paths with them and just to see their heart, that they love the Lord so much. And I've always gone back to my room and I've just said, Lord, help me to love you more. Help me to love you more. I think it all boils down at the end of the day to that place of how am I able to love my Jesus? And out of that flows everything else. You know, and it's such a joy um, to be back here, and um, um, I bring greetings from my family. Uh, my family is a very small family, uh, me and my wife and 12 kids. <laughs> um, uh, we have adopted 10 kids, and um, then we had our first child, uh, Jedidiah. We call him the Jedi in the family. <laughs> and after 14 years, um, last year, uh, my wife gave birth to another one, you know. Um, in India, it's not very common uh, in America, but in India to have a 45-year-old uh, to give birth, it's like a, a big thing. And when we went into the hospital, uh, all of the people would keep telling us and saying, at 45, it has to be a C-section, it has to be a C-section, it has to be a C-section. And me and my wife, we looked at each other and we said, no. Why well, it has to be a C-section? You know, God's going to give you, you know. And we had a lovely gynecologist, and uh, she's 78 years old, still practicing. And, and she was like, ah, don't worry, I've seen so many, you know. <laughs> you take care. And, and it was so interesting that they were, uh, you know, she was in, into labor, and she had a 17 hours of labor, and... And one of our prayers was, Lord, this is a miracle child. This is a miracle child, you know, at 45, Lord giving it. And then 
the mother began to scream and said, the baby is coming, the baby is coming. And the nurses were like, no, 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 there's still this time, there's time. And I said, if the mother is saying it, please believe it. <laughs> you know, and the nurse is like, no, 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 there's still time, there's still time. And the doctors had left, everyone had left, and there was just one nurse, and she didn't know what to do. And so she turned Manju to the side, saying, I think she wanted to stop the baby from coming, and, you know, turned her to the side, and Manju was screaming, my wife was screaming. And with the next few minutes, I saw this little rat wiggle through the thighs. He was out. And I said, he's out. <laughs> and, then the, and the nurse is like, oh yeah, he's already out. <laughs> and so they ran in and they brought the doctor. The doctor came in and said, wait, this can't, can't, guy cannot wait. And you know... And me and my wife looked at each other and said, see, for our first child, you know, uh, there's a story, I'm getting into that story of uh, my wife, of nobody was willing to marry me for many years. You know, I crossed 23, 24, 25, 26. In India, you crossed 28, it's like a death certificate, gone. <laughs> you know, and I crossed 28, and I crossed 29, and then I met this girl, and I was very serious with my marriage. I said, I heard this as a teenager. Next to salvation, the second greatest decision in life is marriage. Don't play around. And so I was very serious with whom I was going to marry. And, and then I found this girl, one of my professor's wife came to me and said, look, think about that girl. And an India dating concept is not very big, you know. So I was observing her really well, very close. And at that time, I was reading so many books on how do you observe the girl whom you're going to marry and what's her mood swings and what's her emotions and, you know, what's her triggers, you know. You. So I, I started observing her very, very closely. And this is how I proposed to her after three months. And I, I know in America, that's a weird thing, you know. I went to her and I said, I've been observing for the last three months. You passed the test. <laughs> I'd like to marry you. She looked at me and she said, I've also been observing you for the last three months. I said, how's that? And I said, the same professor's wife who told you told me also. <laughs> you know, matchmakers, matchmakers. And then she told me something and she said, uh, I just want you to know, you're an I mean, I was working in an organization. I was a director for seven countries, working in this organization, so I was a leader. So she said, I've seen you on stage. I like the way you speak and I, you know, I like the way you are. But I just want you to know this, that from the time I was 14 till the time I was 18, somebody had raped me inside the house for those four years. I may not be even ready for marriage. I may not be even ready to have a child. I was a little shocked. I came back to my room. I began to pray. I was not shocked because she went through what she went through. I was shocked because my simple logic, um, a 30-year-old logic was like, she comes from a negative background, I'm coming from a negative background. Negative plus negative cannot become positive. Today my children tell me, say, negative into negative can become positive, you know. And, and so I went back to her and I said, uh, you're very precious. I want to give my life to you because that's what I heard the Lord. So after 14 years, last year when this child was born, this is what my wife at the delivery room looked at me and he said, our God is a God of redemption, and He has a way to redeem. And this child is my healing child. I just want to say this. No matter what we have gone through, all our journeys don't break us. Our journeys make us. We are who we are is because of our journey. And the Lord uses that for His glory. And the Lord uses those journeys for His purpose. Sometimes it's difficult. It is very difficult. So for us to come to a place, what I'm going to do this morning is just quickly give, uh, you know, share about the work and everything and then get into a quick, short sermon and finish it. Um, after 14 years, God has been so good and, you know, um, 14 years of all that we do is we work with children, we work with teenagers, we work with parents, caretakers, and grandparents. And our focus is on that tagline, anchoring the next generation in the Word of God and God of the Word. That's the whole place. So we spend a lot of time working just with children. We go into schools, go into different places, and God has been very gracious. God has been very gracious. 
Um, in the last, I've just last year, May, I crossed 30 years of working with children and teenagers, and the Lord has graciously taken me to about 36 countries. And it was during COVID. It was very interesting. It was COVID in one of the Zoom calls that I had to teach. Uh, I finished teaching and I sat back and I just said, oh Lord, what happened just the last two hours? What did I, how did this happen? And my wife came up to me and said, why are you in tears? And I said, this is not supposed to happen. In the last two hours, I was teaching a group of people. And she said, yeah, who are they? I said, I was reaching, teaching a group of people from Iraq, from Iran, from Afghanistan, from South Sudan. I should not be the one sitting there and teaching them. I was a boy who grew up on the streets. My dad poured gasoline and burnt my mother alive when she was 23 years old. I saw my dad, uh, you know, twist my, uh, I didn't see, I was very young, you know. Uh, my stepmom has seen uh, her um, son being twisted and strangled to death when he was nine months old. I saw my dad take a hockey stick, a field hockey stick, and kill my grandfather in front of my eyes. And I grew up in a home where abuse was like to the core, every day getting beaten up, my back bleeding with blood, and I can't sleep this way because it's just too much of blood, and I would run away from home, and I would sleep on the streets, you know, right on the streets, on the dirts, you know, with the street dogs. And I would every evening go behind some of these restaurants. If you come to India, especially to southern India, they would give you food in restaurants on banana leaves. You know, they'll give you the banana leaf and they will give you the food on that. And by around 9.30 in the night, they would throw the banana leaves outside after people had finished eating and all the leftover, everything would throw out. And at 9.30 in the night, I was that boy on the street trying to pick up all those banana leaves. If I collect 11 banana leaves, I get one good meal. And there are many nights I would sit there and pray behind the restaurant next to the trash can, Lord, the people who are eating the chicken should not eat the chicken properly. They should not be eating the food properly so that it can come and fall and I can take and eat. I still remember one day uh, there was a big um, banana leaf had fallen. It was a heavy banana leaf, you know. So I picked it up and I opened it and all they saw was a vomit. Somebody had vomited but right in the middle of the vomit, there was a big chicken piece there. And I said, that's fine. I took the chicken piece. I went to a nearby hand pump. I don't know if you know what a hand pump is. And you pump the water and I washed the chicken and I ate. That was my life. For me to look back and say that the Lord can take a boy like me out of the streets. If you have heard of Compassion International, I'm a compassion child. It was a group of children who were fifth grade and sixth graders who collected nickels and dimes and sent for a boy to come out of the street and study in a Methodist mission school, and that was me. Growing up in a place like this, for me today to you know, share this and said for me to travel across and speak to children, speak to teenagers. So for me, the biggest passion that the Lord had laid on my heart is that if we can reach out to the next generation, if we can reach out to our children, if we can reach out to our teenagers, that's the biggest need of the hour. In the last, you know, just before COVID, the year before COVID, I went to some significant places in America, in UK, and in other parts of the world, and I saw churches are not having any members, and it's all shutting down. Why? They had not spent time investing in the next generation. They didn't. And when I read a recent report that the budget in many of the churches for their children work is about 2%. 2%. And everything else takes the higher place, you know. But at a church, we want to see the next generation. So that's the passion that we carry. If we can disciple the children, if we can work with the children, and in a place of how we begin to work in. So these are the th three areas that we work in very strongly, you know. And one of the places that we can... Whitney, can you just help me out, please? So um, there are three things that we really focus on, and three things that we really focus on right now is that, um, yeah, that's right. We come to a place of a family-based care. Um, at a time where in India, just in my city alone, there are over 15,000 orphanages. 15,000 orphanages. 
just in a radius of about six miles, there are over seven to eight thousand orphanages. Now, what's happening with all of these orphanages is because of some funding agency that's funding them, somebody there from the West is funding them, and these children are brought in. And you know what the um, statistics is? That most of the children that you see in these orphanages are actually not orphans. Only 2% of these children are complete orphans. They're all poor children where the parents are not able to take care, so they put them in the orphanage and the children are taken care. So one of the things that Lord laid upon my heart and said, if we can change some of the institutions and adopt children into families, if we can have foster families, if we can have the children grow up in families, food clothing shelter is not going to heal some of these children. It is a family relationship. One of the famous statements that we always share in our trainings, children are hurt in relationships. Children can only be healed in relationships. And for us to be in a place, so that's one of the big things that we do, and we reach out to children from very difficult backgrounds. And one of the things that we do in our sponsorship, and sponsorship is, again, one of my passion, because I was sponsored as a compassion child, so we started a, a sponsorship program. But what we do today, that we sponsor children whose parents are working in very difficult places as pastors, as missionaries. They are not backed up by any big organizations independently, just walking into the villages and doing things. And then we began to realize some of these people working so faithfully in some dangerous places in India where the anti-conversion law is very, very strong. And these people are faithfully working. We said if we can support their children and if they are settled in that place. And one of the father had, you know, he's a missionary. He had come once and he just said this. He said, George... Because you take care of our children's education, we can peacefully go and do. And he was making a statement in the end. He just said, I know that my children can be taken care, will be taken care. I'm ready to go into any places and get killed for Jesus. Every night, I can get killed for Jesus. Those are the kind of people that we begin to sponsor. Now, again, we have to be very wise with the present government and all of that. So we never share in all of our profiles. We never share their missionaries. We always say it's a social worker. We just use the word social worker so that we can support the work, support the ministry in a place of how we begin to, you know, really walk in. So what we have done, you know, just as a report, 70 plus trainings done, 2,000 plus caretakers and officials, government officials, we have mentored about over 100 non-governmental agencies, organizations. You know, here you call it as non-profits, there we call it as NGOs, you know, non-governmental organizations. And we have reached out to over 100,000 people through digital platforms. So um, the place where it has come in very, very strongly is during covid Everything went out there, and we started several of those spaces. Now, many of the teenagers, many of the teenagers are out there on the social media. And that's where we are there, where we counsel, we begin to talk to them. So I'm big on Instagram, Marco Polo, Snapchat, you name it. And many of the children, teenagers, are no more there on Facebook. I don't know whether you noticed that, because their parents are coming into Facebook, so they're running away from Facebook. <laughs> And they're all joining Instagram, you know. They said, no, my mom is there on Facebook, and I don't want to be there, you know. So they're beginning to uh, run into Instagram, you know. So every, um, you know, we've been doing a lot of intervention camps, you know, that in a place of how we begin to deal with. And we reach out to so many children. And one of the major things that kind of started off in the last four years is counseling children in a place of how we began to spend time with children. So we get into some of the schools, you know, um, uh, and begin to talk to some of the teenagers, begin to work things out, you know. And just the last four years, one of the first things that we had done is that for us to deal with children coming from abused backgrounds became a huge, heavy heart for us, you know, because I'm coming from an abused background, my wife comes from an abused background, and both of her hearts begin to really shake for the abused people. Uh, we had one girl um, who was brought into our home at 11.30 in the night. Somebody knocked at the door, and we opened up the place as we opened up the door, and this was a girl standing there, a 17-year-old. And I said, who are you? She just said, you know, somebody gave us your address, and that's why I'm landed up here. I said, where are you from? And she just says, I was trafficked, and I was put into this room 
by these people who kidnapped me. And it's a room which has several doors. About, I think it's about five doors, uh, gates that were there, and they had put her in so that she would not escape. And a girl who does not even know about the Lord. And somebody had told about Jesus, and she was there in the middle of that room, one of the room inside, and she begins to call on the name of Jesus. All that she said was, Jesus, please help me. I'm telling you, this story always grips my heart. As a young girl, a 16-year-old sitting there, she suddenly in the middle of the night saw one door after the other opening up, all of the five doors. And she walks through the doors, comes into the uh, road, and suddenly she realizes she's free. She gets into a train, takes a a 22-hour trip uh, train, and she comes to our home, and she's standing there at our gate and said, please take me, please take me. Now, when I hear the stories, you know, and especially this story, and that's what happened in the book of Acts, right? That's what the angel did, you know, open up the doors. And we keep hearing so many different stories. You know, once we were traveling from another place, as me and my wife were traveling from another place, somebody called us and said, and this girl has been in slavery, kept by her own relatives, you know, had kept her in slavery for 14 years. She's lost her parents. And um, so she's 21, 22 they called me up and they said, would you be able to take this girl? And I said, sure. So we were driving from one part of India to another part. And so we called this girl and said, I'll be crossing this particular place. Would you like to come to the nearby national highways, you know, to the highway? Because in India, it's always a thing. Whenever you're going to rescue, never get into the village or into the place to rescue a girl. Always ask them to come to a certain place and then you pick them up. Otherwise, you'll land up in a big problem, you know, with the locals, you know. So I I told, you know, why don't you come? And I'm here with my wife and with my child, so please come. She said, yes, uncle, I will come. Thank you so much for taking me in. I said, fine, please come. We waited there for the next hour. We called her up, and she said, oh, I'm coming. We waited there for the next one hour. We called her up, and she said, oh, yeah, I'm coming. And then we were tired, and we slept off, you know, on the side of the road under a tree in our car. We put the AC on, and we slept off. As we slept off, and after about two hours, we called her up again, and she said, oh, you have not still gone. Uh, I'm coming. That evening, we stood there under the tree for six and a half hours. And my wife was asking me this question, why are we waiting? I said, it's not easy for a girl just like that to trust somebody and come. And especially somebody who has gone through so much of abuse. I think we need to wait. After that, she came. When she came, we took her in. She was with us for the four and a half years. Today, she's married. She has a child. Both she and her husband has accepted the Lord as their Savior. To come to that spaces where people are giving up on people. So when we do our camps, many a times we tell the people to send the children from these uh, childcare institutes or orphanages. We tell them, do you have a, a kid who is very rebellious? Do you have a girl who's having a, a lots of behavioral issues? Send those kids to our camps. Usually it happens around. When you have these camps for teenagers, they always say, don't, get, don't send those uh, kids who are very hard behavioral issues. Send the good kids, you know. We said, send us the bad kids. And people are very happy to send those kids. Very happy, you know, and they would just say, oh, we would love to send those kids. So we started a place, you know, four years ago, we started something called Camp Precious, where we have these children, we take these children between the age of uh, uh, 8 to 13, we take these children and we begin to really work with them. Now, in these camps, there is a nurturer for every child, somebody who's walking alongside this child. I can share a lot more, but let me do a video so you can see. This is the recent camps that we did last year, and just watch this video. One of the things that we do is we celebrate all of those children's birthdays because none of them have celebrated their birthdays. We have a lot of activities and everything, but it's all about talking to them. 
sharing with them as they are involved in the activities. capture their pictures and we give them an album at the end of the camp. So there are memories that they can carry. It's amazing to see how we work with, you know, this year we're having our camps. And one of the things that we see in these camps are these children coming from places where they many a times tell us this one thing. I've never had an adult walk with me in my life. There are children who come to our camps who have been trafficked to several cities and brought back. There's a boy who was there in our camp last year that the drunkard father had poured acid on his hand and his hand was withering in and everybody said that's it that's his life and his own mother had thrown him away and in a places when we give them that space to really work with some of these kids come and tell this uh, to us several times and said uncle this three four days and uh, you know five uh, four nights and five days was great but can you take me home can you take me home? And then we started a mentoring program. So we said, let's not just do the camp and leave them at the end of it. So my team, I, I, we have a team of 18 people, and half of them are clinical psychologists and sociologists who are there. So every week they go into these orphanages and children's homes and all of that and spend time mentoring these children so that we can bring them back to the camp the year later. And that's one of the things that I begin to share with my team. And I just said, anything that we do, let's not deal with the surface and the numbers. No, no, no. In our camps, we don't go beyond 45, 50 children. That's it. It's easy for us to, in India, numbers are very big, you know, so you can easily have big, big crowds that can come in. And we just said, we cannot go beyond 45, 50 kids. And when we celebrate their birthdays, we come to a place as we begin to do things. We ask ourselves this question. The question is this. How are we impacting these children? In the month of May, we, we are having it. You know, So our boys camp, our girls camp, that's going to happen. So right now on this trip, I'm raising funds uh, for the places, whatever it is. And the second thing that we began to do is... Uh, Project Precious. What's Project Precious? Many of these missionaries who are working in many of these places, in simple, simple places that they're working in, their children have desires where their missionaries, simple missionaries, are not able to fulfill their desires. Now, when I say simple missionaries, you know what their salary is? Every month, their salary, some of these missionaries they receive, is $25. $25. That's their salary for the whole month. And some, some mission organizations, they give about you know, $80 to $100 they begin to give in. But still, with that money, they say, I cannot buy a gift for the child. I cannot. And many of these, you know, I don't know if you've heard this word called MKs and PKs, pastors, kids, and missionary kids. And many of these kids are so bitter towards God. And many of these kids ask this question, just because I'm a missionary kid, I cannot get what I want. I can't get a toy for Christmas. I can't get a gift for Christmas. It's because I'm a missionary kid. Now, why is God so partial that just because my parents stepped in to be missionaries, why we are left out in this place? So about two, three years ago, we stepped in. We just said every December, what we are going to do is we are going into some of these missionary organizations and we tell them, can you send all of your missionary kits 
because we want to bless them. We want to give them. So you know what we do? We pack up gifts for them. Now, when you pack up a gift, yeah, you can buy a toy or a, a soft toy or something. I told my team, and I said, I don't want these children to know that we love them so much. No, 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 no. I want these children to know that we love them too much because God loves them too much. So what we started doing is that when we packed up these packages, you know, these uh, Christmas boxes that we packed up for these children, I told my team there should not be one gift or two gifts. Each box should have at least about 20 to 25 different gifts inside the boxes. And we threw in so many different gifts. When these children begin to open up, they would see all these tiny, tiny ones, a lot of different things. There'll be a one or two major gift that'll be there. Then through a lot of different gifts. And I still remember when we were doing this in one of the places that the mother came to me with tears and said, my son wanted a particular car, a black car. And he's been praying for that black car. And guess what? This evening when you gave the gift, he got exactly that black car. See, our God is a God who is a sovereign God. And he knows how he, know, he can fulfill the hearts of the children. You know, this is one of the video, and uh, this is a little older video, but I wanted you to see this because there's a very special person in that video sitting there, if you recognize who it is. That's Whitney. Yeah, so that's why I said I should show this video, you know, and in a place, she was with us in one of the places where we did it, you know, just watch this. This is 2017, yeah. So this is a very big missionary organization. We brought all of their children. so much and pack it. The children don't even know there are several gifts inside. These two guys didn't even want to open it. Talk to the children, not just giving them gifts, but sit and share about the Lord. Anchor them in the word of God. Anchor them in the God of the word. Share with them, we are doing this because the Lord loves you so much. And we always say the growth doesn't happen in straight lines and happens in circles. So when we did this for this organization, it's an organization that's been working for 40 years of the organization called me up and said, George, you didn't just come and encourage the kids. You have encouraged all our 30,000 missionaries. You have encouraged them. Now everybody are going back saying, thank you for blessing our kids. Because many of them had this desire to give something for their kids, but they could not. They could not give. In a place is how they were beginning to, you know, walk in and, you know, things like that. So, a lot of wonderful things that has happened. Just to close, um, we just in the last two years were certified by three different groups. One is the Texas Christian University. Me and my wife got a, a, a lovely scholarship. We came to TCU in Dallas, got certified in TBRI, and also uh, having a partnership with two other organizations called Father Children, Royal Family Kids. Uh, Royal Family Kids is an organization that does intervention camps, discipleship camps for about 35 years in about 100 plus nations. And we have got trained on how we begin to do these intervention camps and how we can work things out. And uh, one of the biggest need for us, 
right now as I close. Let me just go into the sermon. But the biggest need for us is that we can have 60 people who can give $100 every month. Because right now, one of the biggest need is to fulfill the running expenses. So if there are 60 people who can give us just the $100, you know, that'll be $6,000 for us every month. That's our budget, you know, in a place of how we begin to walk in. And I want to bring my family. That's my family. With all my kids and uh, with all my adopted kids, that's when my wife was pregnant. And uh, some, one of my teenagers came to me and said, how many times do we get to see our own mother give birth? You know, and uh, be in that place because they were all teen. They're all teenagers right now, and they're all in a place. So they organized a baby shower for Manju, and so that was the baby shower picture. You know, so they brought in all of our, you know, uh, staff and everyone together. That's the little fellow Joshua there below, and in things like that. Um, in in all the places where we stepped in, when me and my wife stepped in to bring these children into the house, we had to sacrifice a lot of different things. We couldn't go and meet our friends anymore because this was our primary responsibility. There are people who have got offended with us as saying, oh, you don't come and visit us anymore. And I said, we have 10 kids inside the house. That's our responsibility. We just can't leave and walk away. We have to be in that place of how we begin to do. One of the biggest needs that we have right now, especially in the family, is that uh, we don't have a car. You know, we had a car which we had to let go and give it to the organization because the organization began to grow so much that they began to travel in different places. So we said, okay, let's give the car out. So right now with all teenagers and few of them are driving and they say, Daddy, we don't have a car. And I just said, don't worry about it. Every day pretend as if you're getting into a car, whatever is the car. And I know the Lord will give. That's one of the biggest needs that we have. And something amazing happened last year is that a group of directors came up and said, we want to do a movie on your life. And last year they released a short film on my life. And they brought in actors and you know, they heard my story. They did a background check to see whether the story was true and all of that. And they did the movie. And when I was there in the shoot that was happening, I couldn't be there more than three hours. You know, After three hours, I told the director, I can't be here. It was too triggering, a true triggering. And this movie, you have seen the movie. Please be careful that you don't show it for children because of all the abuse and everything. They have made it a little violent. It ended up that way. Uh, but in a place, and, and this movie right now, in several places across India, people are using this mu movie to speak to children, to speak to teenagers who are coming from abused backgrounds, and saying, if God can help this guy, God can help you, in a place of how things can happen, you know. So that's one thing that's uh, in a place. And then we got onto a building project, and um, Indiana Church would know about the building project, and during COVID, the Lord began to speak a lot of different things, and some of the government's you know, protocols began to change. Like, you can't have just one staircase. You need to have two staircases. And because it was half-built, we could immediately do a lot of different changes. And that's the time the Lord began to share about the building project. And we built a place. You know, we call it the Ark. You know, that's what we call it. Uh, it's called the Ark. And... Uh, so we work with a lot of children as they're working with a lot of children. This ark, the place that we are building, is a place where we would bring in some of these children. And we are able to disciple them, mentor them. So that's the ark, the place that we are building right now. A center for counseling and therapies for children and teenagers from difficult backgrounds. This will be one of a kind in India. Project information. Total project costs. So the whole project was uh, 2.4 million USD and I told the Lord and I said, Lord, it's too big. And the Lord said, because it's too big, you can't do it, only I can do it. We started this uh, in 2016 and it's a long journey as we all the Indiana Church would know on how we started slowly, slowly, slowly building it up. It's an eight-year journey that we have taken. Eight years. And then we finished one part of the project and we inaugurated that. The Ark, Phase 2 Construction, was supposed to start in March 2019. So but right now, let me just cut that and put some pictures there, you know.
So this is how we started off in that place. So if you see, that's the drone shot of where it was stopped before COVID. But we are thanking the Lord. This is where we are right now. Some of the buildings are already completed. The completed. We have two parts of it, the ark and the father's nest. And the father's nest is 80% completed. And in a place. And so right now, we are in a place of how we have to raise the last bit of it. The last bit is just 400,000 US dollars is what we need. And always we say, if the Lord has given this much, the Lord can give. Pray for this project. Pray for this project. This is the first emotional trauma center in the whole of India. It's the first emotional trauma center in the whole of India. And we are already getting calls from government agencies. We are getting calls from different groups and saying, when are you finishing it? When are you finishing it? We want to send the children. We want to send the children for counseling. And we are anchoring that in the word of God and God of the word. All of the principles, my background being counseling, psychology, we are coming in very strongly and saying, if we can, biblical principles that we can bring in, in a place of how we begin to you know, work things out. Now, I want to just close by just bringing your attention to a tamarisk tree. What's a tamarisk tree? In Genesis 21, 23, Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. When I read this passage and I just said, Abraham is always known as an altar builder, not a tree planter. And how in the world he planted a tree? What was the reason why he planted a tree? And when I began to ask that question, when I began to ask that question, he planted a tree because Abraham was always known as an altar builder, but in a place of how he began to do things, it stood as a prophetic symbol of future hope of his faith claim to God's promised land. It was a whole scenario is there in Genesis when you begin to read it. Um, Abimelech, you know, begins to come and tell, acknowledge and tell, um, tells Abraham and says, Hey, a day is going to come where God's going to raise you up so much. Please remember me. And Abraham says, Hey, the well that I dug up, your servants have taken the well. And then he says something very interesting. Oh, I didn't even know about it. Please take the well. I'll give you the place. And then it says, Abraham planted, verse 33, Abraham planted a tamarisk tree there in Beersheba, and there he called on the name of the Lord. He called on the name of the Lord. I just want to say something, you know, uh, coming to a place. For God had given Abraham the promised land, and Abraham had made a faith claim upon the promises of God by planting a tree. When God gives you a vision... When God asks you to do something, it's not about we fulfilling it, we partnering with him so that he can fulfill it. Many a times we want to do it, we want to get some things done. You know, this COVID was a very difficult season and we lost a lot of our donors. You know, we had to cut down our staffing from 35 staff. We are just about 18 staff right now. We had to cut down the staffing and everything we came in. But we just said, though there are dead ends, it looks like a dead end. For God, it's not a dead end. For God is a God who can open up doors through it all. He can open up doors through it, you know. So it comes to a place where Abraham begins to work things out. Why a tamarisk tree? And I saw something very interesting. There are 14 species of a tamarisk tree. A tamarisk tree can grow up to 25 feet tall, and each plant can produce as many as 500,000 seeds annually. 500,000 seeds annually. What was Abraham doing? I am called as the father of many nations. He was holding on to the prophecy over his life. He was holding on to the covenant over his life. And he was planting something very prophetic right there. And said, this is who I am. And the Lord has called me. Many a times from my background that I've gone through, you know, the damaged inner script is very high for me and I struggled so much through those years of going through abuse and all of that. And one of the things in my damaged inner script that began to happen during my college days and even after my college days is self-doubt. Can God really do things through you? Can God really work things through you? Can God really, you know, open up doors for you? And that's where I had to keep coming back to his word and begin to look into his promises and begin to speak to myself and said, the Lord has brought me this far. The Lord is able to take me. The Lord has brought me this far. 
and the Lord is able to take me beyond this. The Lord has brought me this far. In a place where Abraham said something very, very powerful. What's the powerful thing that he said? He just said, it is uh, thereby a worthy symbol. It profoundly expresses the blessed hope of multiplication, abundance of God's covenant to father Abraham. You know, in that place of how Abraham wanted to show that of and saying, the Lord's hand is over my life and the Lord has called me and I have to be in a place of how I begin to do things. And the Lord put it in my heart to, you know, come to United States at this particular time. In one of my prayer time, the Lord began to speak to me and I just said, Lord, this time in United States is the worst time to really go. The inflation is so high and I hear some of my friends are saying we have not even repaired our phones, you know, and we don't even have money to repair our phones and we, you know, don't have money to do this and that. And the Lord said, no, you're going to go. And I said, Lord, I, I really don't know how things are going to happen, how things are going to open up. I'm going to go and share about the ark and all of that. And as I began to do it, as I began to just obey the Lord, guess what? It came to a place where the Lord began to lay upon my heart. You remember what I told you about f seven years ago? And I still remember seven years ago, the Lord had told about a campsite that I need to make. But at that time, I just said, Lord, the ark project itself is a huge project. You know, I'm not going to think about anything else. And the Lord said, you put it on a back burner. It's going to be a time where I'm going to ask you to pick it up. Just before I came here, the Lord reminded me and just said, can you get some of the things ready? Can you work with your architect and get some things ready? And I just came to a place and I just said, Lord, it's a huge project to have a camp. Why, why having a campsite? Because we do camps. Uh, every year we do camps. And every camp we spend about $12,000 to $15,000. Every time. So if we're going to have our campsite, like four camps, five camps, the amount of money that we would be able to save as we do the camps, and also as an income generation where there are other churches who want to you know, hire a place where they can do camps. And because another thing the Lord's put laying on our hearts is how long you're going to keep on asking people for give money, give money, give money. Thank you. Think about some income generation, some sustainability of we can sustain yourself to the vision of what it is. And that's how the Lord laid upon the heart and we began to do things. As we began to do things, then things fall in place. This is where, this is the first place on this trip. I just came in and this is where I'm going for 12 cities in 28 days, 15 flights. And everything fall in place. Everything began to fall in place. I'm telling you some of the doors that the Lord has opened up. I've been invited by the 700 Club by CBN for a live interview on the channel. I'll be going to West, uh, Virginia Beach in Norfolk, you know, and the co-founder of CBN, the 700 Club, Terry Musen, is going to interview me. And when the Lord began to open up doors, I can share a lot of different things. There was another group of brothers called the Benham Brothers. You know, they are very big, uh, you know, real estate guys. And they've invited to have lunch with them. And, and the Lord of doors, the Lord began to open up. And I sat back and I said this to my wife. And I just said, the Lord is opening up all of this. My wife said, he's a God who is already in our tomorrow. He's a God who is already in our tomorrow. And when things began to fall in place, when I began to you know, work things out, I reminded myself again of the tamarisk tree and said, for in a movement of God, we got to see, believe, and anchor in the future hope that indeed that God will multiply. For us to come to that place to see ourselves with our spiritual eyes and say the Lord indeed will multiply. I'll leave you with this last story. In 2014, I had some dizziness. When I had the dizziness, you know, um, I went for an MRI, and then uh, the doctors said, uh, George, you've been diagnosed with MS, multiple sclerosis. You have two lesions. And after about six months, again, I had a relapse. My left side got paralyzed. They did an MRI. They said it's now 12 lesions. After about eight months, again, I had a relapse where I lost my eyesight. Now the doctor said, uh, I think it's growing up very fast. It's 28 lesions right now. After an year, my whole right leg got paralyzed. Now, every time you get paralyzed, they, the only thing that they do is to shoot you high dosage of steroids, you know, uh, to bring you back, you know, um, and that's what they did, uh, 1,000 milligrams of steroids. They shoot for over five days, and they try to bring you back, and... 
in 2017, in 2018, when I had a relapse, the doctors said, George, I think it'll be just two more years for you. That's it. It was 2019, sorry. 2019, it's going to be just two more years for you. Not that you're going to die in two more years, but in two more years, you will be on a wheelchair because right now the lesions are 45 lesions. And we don't know what you're going to do. Went back to the Lord. You know, I'm telling you about the death of a vision sometimes, the dead end kind of spaces that begins to come. And I went before the Lord. As I went before the Lord, the Lord said, I've brought you this far. Am I not able to take you beyond this? I'm standing here with no interferons, no medications, nothing. I've crossed two and a half years and there is no relapse. There is no relapse. Just in the month of January, some of my mentors, my friends, and they just said, George, you're walking it. You know, let's go to the top neurologist in India. Let's go and you know, have a, a consultation with him. And I said, okay, fine, I'll just go. Because they were like, you're not taking the interferons. You're supposed to take the interferons, and you're not taking it. So I said, fine, I'll go. His name is Dr. Thomas. He's a top neurologist specialized in MS. So I have a Zoom call with him, and he just says, oh, you have so many lesions, and you have not done the interferons. Oh, come, I'll put you on some medications. Don't worry about it. Come and meet me tomorrow. And me and my wife are looking at each other and said, really, should we go? And my wife said, just go, just go, just go. Then I go the next day. When I go the next day, he said, can you do an MRI and then come? So we did an MRI that day. The next day, we went there. They looked at the MRI, and he began to call all the other neurologists and doctors including a radiologist who is a specialized with MS. Everybody comes in, they begin to, and I'm sitting there in that table, and in front of me, they're beginning to talk and things like that, and this was the word I kept hearing it. How is that possible? How is that possible? How is that possible? And then he, he was not satisfied. He just said, George, with the MRI and everything, you're not supposed to be walking around. We don't know how you're walking around. But you know what we want to do? I want to bring a neurologist and they will give for next to two hours, they will make you jump and do everything because we want to clinically certify that you're okay. And they made me do all of that. You know, they make you lie down and move the, uh, the toe and they will touch and they, I have to tell which toe that they are touching and you know, all of that. And for the next two hours, they did everything and that lady said he's perfectly fine. And this is what the doctor said. He's a Christian doctor. He looked at me and he said after about a whole day that I'm spending time in the hospital, he took me into his office and he just said, I think George is, God has already healed you. A neurologist, the top neurologist, I think God has already healed you. Unless I see a symptom, I'm not going to give you any medications. Just go back home. Just go back home. When you come to a place when the Lord has called you, and this is what I want you to take away from this morning. No matter what your background is, no matter what your situation is, the Lord has brought you this far for a purpose. For a purpose. All that you and I need to do, just like Abraham. It's very interesting. Right after Genesis, that chapter, the next chapter that comes there is the sacrifice of Isaac. Right after his claim of the faith claim of the prophecy that the Lord had, the covenant that the Lord had for Abraham, the next chapter that comes there is the sacrifice of Isaac. And it says God tested Abraham. And then he goes on through it. You know the whole story of how he began to walk in. No matter what comes our way, you know, I'll leave you with these last words. All that we are called to do is to just be faithful. For if one is truly faithful, one would be truly fruitful. And it all boils down to faithfulness. I had a mentor once say this when I was a young uh, teenager. He said this very interesting. Only people who are full of faith can be faithful. Only people who are full of faith can be faithful. Today, we're living in a social media world. Many a times, it's all about comparisons. Oh, he's there. Oh, he's doing this. Oh, she's there. I think we need to come to a place. The Lord has brought me here. He has kept me here. He has kept me in the now. I need to be faithful here. And that will put ourselves in a position where God is going to take us to a much greater place. This is where the Lord has brought me. The Lord has brought me this far. I can't live in my past and I can't live in my future. 
Today, some of the teenagers and young people that I deal with when I counsel them from abused backgrounds, it's so difficult sometimes because they so glorify, they so glorify the hurt rather than glorifying the healer. They're so victim mentality rather than a victory mentality. That they are always the victimized, you know, oh, this happened to me, this happened to me. And we so glorify. We are not called to live in the past. And we are not called to live in the future. We are called to live in the now. The Lord has brought me this far, and he has brought me here in this place. Right now, this is the place. And let me just be faithful to where God has called me. Full stop. When my wife was diagnosed with cervical cancer, it was a very difficult time. And me and my wife looked at each other and said, what are we going to do? And I said, uh, let's just pray. And we just prayed. As we prayed, it was, nobody was there, but a thought that came into our heart saying, um, let's go for the highest test that's available in India, the HPV DNA test. And let's do the highest test. So we went back to the gynecologist and said, we want to do the test. And she said, no, 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 all the tests have come positive. If the tests were not positive, we would go for the highest DNA test to confirm. But all of these things are positive, so please don't waste your money. And we said, no, uh, we're going to borrow some money and you know, get the test done. It's okay. We want to do it. So she said, okay, it's your money. Okay, do it. So we did the test. It, they said after 24 hours, it's come on an email. We kept the laptop open, and we were waiting there. After 24 hours, the results came in, and we both began to scream. It came negative. It came negative. I can stand here and keep sharing stories after stories after stories. Because sometimes what happens, the enemy is beginning to throw things our way. My response in the middle of my struggle will position me for victory. My response in the middle of my trials will position me for victory. How am I going to respond to the Lord? Shall we bow our heads in prayer? just a few seconds to just come before the Lord and just simply say, Lord, here I am. Lord, here I am. I don't know where you are. I don't know what situation you are in. But our response in the middle of our struggle will position us for victory. How are we responding? Are we responding with gratitude or are we responding with a grumbling heart? Are we responding in a place of thanksgiving or are we responding in a place of doubt? We come before the Lord. Abraham came so strongly and he said, I am going to plant a tree to claim the covenant that the Lord had for me. It's a, a, a pictorial reference. It's a place to give me that space to see that the Lord is able to do immeasurably more beyond what I can ask or imagine according to his power that is at work in me. My brothers and sisters, this morning I pray that there would be faith that will rise up in your heart if there is any of those projects that you have kind of put it on the back burner, if there is any of those doors you felt like, no, I'm not going to do it, can you go back to the Lord again? The Lord says, I will do it. You can't do it. But step out and step in. Step out and step in. I am a God who has called you by name. I am the Lord who knew you even before you were formed in the mother's womb. I am the Lord who knows the end even from the beginning, Isaiah 46, 10. He knows the end even from the beginning. And the verse says that I will do all that pleases me, declares the Lord. Father, I speak this verse over my brothers and sisters here, Lord. You're a God who is able to do immeasurably more, and you're able to do all that pleases you. All that pleases you. I pray this morning that there will be faith that will rise up in the hearts, that people will not limit you. People sitting here will never limit you, Lord. Rather, they would come to a place to say, I have a great, big, wonderful God. I have a God who is able to do immeasurably more. Lord, for us to step out and step in to accept you, to come to that place to trust you and rest in you, I pray that you would help us, Father. You would help us. Lord, I want to bless this church, Lord. Just bless them, Lord. 
for the ways that they have stood with us and for all of the pastors and the elders and all of the members, Father. I pray that this church would be such a, play a significant role in this neighborhood, Lord, that they would become that seed of unification, being, bringing all the other churches together, unified. They, they will bring all the other groups together at a time where we are all so many times, Lord, try to build our own kingdoms and become a king of the kingdom, the biggest need of the hour is that we come together and partner and come alongside and do things. And Father, I pray that you will use Word of Grace significantly, Lord, in that space of bringing people together. Thank you for giving me a privilege to be here this morning, Lord. Thank you for giving me a privilege this morning. And I pray this prayer again, that, they let, that let faith rise up in the hearts of my brothers and sisters. If there is anything that they seem to have forgotten, remind them. If there is anything that they have completely lost hope and put it on the back burner, Lord, help them to take it up. Because you are a God who is still on the throne. You are a God who is sovereign. And you are a God who is able to do immeasurably more. Help us, Lord, to just obey and follow you. Jesus, we love you. In Jesus' name. Amen.